Hey, Parisi Nation. Steve Leo here, your host of the Parisi Podcast. And I'm very honored to have the great Ken Clark on our call today. Uh, Ken is definitely a huge leader in our industry when it comes to speed development. He has done tons of research, uh, has worked uh, in the private sector, in schools, and really his knowledge base is a lot of what we've incorporated now into our programming, our manual, our education. Uh, so we're really, really lucky to have him on the call. And I'm going to try to you know, pick his brain on some things, but also see how can we take all of his knowledge that he's worked with some of the higher level athletes and, and bring it on down. So uh, I'm going to turn it over to you, Ken. I'll let you give your bio because you'll do a much better job than I will. And, and we'll go from there. Sure. Well, thanks, Steve, for having me on. And to, to Parisi Nation, uh, you have had a, a longstanding uh, relationship with the, the Parisi Speed Schools and Bill himself. And so really, really happy to be here. Uh, yeah, my my own personal background, uh, multi-sport athlete as a kid growing up, um, come from a great family. I'm very blessed. My my dad uh, does biomedical research, but was also a coach. Uh, he's a high school football coach and a speed coach. And um, he's always interested in getting his players faster and then also helping me get faster. Uh, I always make the joke that uh, he's never hugely uh, genetically gifted. Uh, uh, I'm small and weak, but I made up for it by being slow. So uh, I was always, uh, was always trying to get better as an athlete myself. And um, that actually led me uh, and my dad down to Freecy Speed School. I grew up in Connecticut with Mid-Atlantic Roots. My dad took me down to to Parisi Speed School when I was about 18 years old. This is back in 1998, so I'm dating myself there. And uh, for a one-on-one -on -one session with Bill, uh, really trying to work on my uh, speed and, and specifically 40-yard dash time, uh, I was very interested in playing college football, even at the small school level. And, and even back then, you needed to, to run a good 40 as a, as a running back, which I was to get recruited. So that's kind of how I uh, first got intertwined with, with Bill. And, um, you know, what, what became kind of, I guess, a – as a hobby growing up became a, a passion and then a career, fortunately, uh, as it relates to, you know, investigating running mechanics and, and coaching and, and all things speed. So I uh, had a good uh, division three career as a running back. And after that, got into to coaching first football at the division three levels, a grad assistant. And then that kind of morphed over into strength and conditioning. Uh, I coached in a private sector at a place called Summit Sports in uh, suburban Philadelphia for the better part of a decade in my 20s. Had a great experience there. There's just a ton of great coaches on staff that I learned from. Um, and then ultimately got in, in, uh, interested in a, in a research side of things. So my, my undergrad degree uh, at Swarthmore was uh, ironically in psychology. They didn't have a, an exercise science program there. Um, of course, psychology is a big part of, of coaching and, and working with others and communicating, but um, nothing directly related to exercise science. And so I got my master's degree. I went back at, at the age of 28 and did my master's degree in kinesiology at, at Westchester University. Um, fell in love with the research process there. So I, I kind of did that master's degree, actually not, not really thinking that I was going to go get a doctorate or, you know, go into research or academia or anything like that. I, I just needed a, you know, some degree in exercise science and, and really fell in love with the research process during that time. Uh, my master's thesis was a, a training study on, um, you know, weighted uh, sled pulling. Uh, so just for, for speed. And so I loved it. Uh, went down to Dallas in, uh, in 2010. And for five years, I was studying at uh, Southern Methodist University in Dallas with Dr. Peter Wayne and uh, Dr. Larry Ryan in the lab there. And, um, you know, it was just a great experience. I know Bill uh, knows Peter as well. And, um, you know, it was, it was an awesome time in my life where uh, for five years, I just got to do nothing but investigate 
running and sprinting biomechanics, which is a pretty unique uh, scenario. And then in, uh, in 2015, uh, when I had finished my PhD down there at SMU, um, Westchester University, which was my alma mater, they, they had a, uh, an opening as a faculty member in biomechanics and motor learning. Actually, one of my old teachers had retired. Um, so they, uh, they offered me the, the job and I was you know, really excited to come back to the, the northeast part of the country. As I said, my, my roots are in Philly and I kind of love the mid-Atlantic region. And um, the other part of, that was really cool for me at Westchester is um, you know, I, I could get to coach. So I, I teach classes, biomechanics, motor learning. I, I research, um, you know, running, uh, running mechanics. And then um, when my classes are done uh, every day at 3 p.m., our, our uh, track and football field is right outside our health sciences building. So I literally just walk down the hill from the classroom and, and work with the speed and power athletes on the track team. Uh, we've got a, a great uh, a great head coach there at Westchester, Jason Kilgore, who lets me volunteer. And um, and it's it's just an awesome way to to keep my hand in, in all three things, teaching, researching and and coaching. And I, you know, I just feel feel really blessed for kind of where I'm at now. Obviously, this year has been a little bit different. Uh, for me, as it has been for everybody, uh, you know, our education's remote and coaching looks a lot different, but um, great, great place to be. And, and uh, yeah, I really have a, a great kind of hybrid combination job. And um, it's great for me to uh, when I moved back to the Philadelphia area to take the job at Westchester to get reconnected uh, to Bill and the Parisi Speed Schools. So uh, it's, it's, it's been a great relationship for me in that way. So, yeah, it's I mean, it's tremendous your background on, on where you started and how you worked your way through and. You know, you know, with the Swarthmore College, which is people don't realize that's a tough college to get into. That that's a that's kind of like the Harvard of liberal arts. Playing right? football helps college? me get in. I'll just put it yeah. that way. <laughs> uh, I know that, and then you know, in Westchester has always been known for. Um, I, I've hired and, and definitely worked with people who've gone through the Westchester Exercise Science Program, so they're yep. they're very well touted. And you know, I think the big thing is you know doing doing the research with Dr. Peter Wayans. I mean, his research to me. It's probably the best out there when it comes to uh, speed development. Um, and you know what? You can understand it. <laughs> it's, it's another way I'm going to look at it. Um, I, I had the pleasure of seeing him speak at the GAIN Network um, yep. about three years ago. I'm, I'm, I'm part of that network, and I got to see him speak. And I know that we, we've done a lot of work, all of us together, listening to him. But I, I want to just tap into when you were working with him, what were some of the things that were just kind of eye-popping that really – changed your outlook i mean obviously you had a background and, and you know you kind of knew a lot about speed work from your days of playing and and going through getting your master's things like that but what were some of the things that were those aha or wow moments that uh that you kind of experienced yeah well funny little backstory um not to rehash old times too much but actually part of the timeline of all this was i visited bill and with my dad in 1998 and peter's really famous study on uh, vertical ground forces during top speed sprinting was published in the year 2000 while Peter was at Harvard. So my dad actually emailed Peter and was like, oh, this is great stuff. You know, how do we apply this to getting our athletes faster? And, it, you know, kind of the collective discussion is, well, that, that's kind of what we still got to figure out. Like this is the mechanics of it. But now, you know, how do we take this and basically translate it into coaching practice? And so that was like another interesting, you know, email discussion that I was a part of with with Peter, actually, when I was only 20 years old, a full decade before I ultimately went down and studied with him. But uh, to your question, I'll stop rambling. To your question, Steve, you great. know, the, probably the the best thing about um, my time there in the SMU lab was, you know, it was always really clear that we wanted to stick to the scientific method, first of all, and I'll get into that in a second. And second of all, do research that 
you know, was translational, that had practical applications. It, it's not, you know, it, it, it's good to do research that's, you know, you're up in an ivory tower and in a laboratory and you have good findings. But if you can't trans translate that into practice, then it then it loses some of its impact, pun intended, for our purposes here. Right. So, um, yeah, with, with, with Peter and Larry and in the SMU lab, it was always like, well, what's our, you know, what's our research question first? What are we really trying to look at? And when I got down there in 2010, you know, as a following up on, on Peter's prior uh, two really big studies on, on vertical ground reaction force and, and sprinting. And, you know, those two studies kind of outlined the, the how. How are faster runners doing it compared to slower runners? Well, more vertical ground reaction force, less time, that sort of thing. Uh, those two studies in 2000 and 2010 had, had outlined that. But the, the what and the why was still left unknown, basically. So when I got down there in 2010, I mean, I was so lucky. My my doctoral dissertation question, uh, you know, outlining my entire studies was, well, let's figure out, you know, why or what is allowing them to do this. And and so everything else in a, you know, in a true scientific method sense really flowed from there. So Peter had some hypotheses as to, you know, what was allowing them to do this. Basically, what we all know and love is front side mechanics, you know, um, you know, really attacking the ground, stiff contact, you know, upon, um, you know, the foot striking the ground. But that wasn't entirely known how, how that all interconnected when I got down there at that time. So that was kind of the working hypotheses. And then, you know, between um, me and Peter and Larry and uh, another a doctoral student, Andrew Dofa, we just we tested um, over 115 athletes. Uh, from all levels, male, female, you know, literally Olympic gold medal winning sprinters down to average Joes, team sport athletes, Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, first responders, you name it. So uh, Olympians to, to average Joes and everyone in between and just basically teased out, you know, what they were doing different. And so, um, you know, that that, that kind of goes to the first part of your question, which was what was the eye opening thing? Well, number one, just that good research comes from just asking good questions, formulating hypotheses and then figuring out what you need to do to test that. And, you know, I think we all learned the scientific method in, in seventh grade, but it was eye opening to me to realize that the best research is coming just from adhering to that. The second part of it, though, is what I already mentioned, which was, you know, um, you just mentioned a, a few seconds ago that like Peter's 2000 study really, you know, is where the light bulb went off for you. It's like, hey, this is not just this is great research, but it's, you know, it's impactful to, to what I'm going to do from a coaching standpoint. So, you know, that was always impressed upon me during my time in SMU lab, which was, OK, well, this is good research. We need to follow the scientific method. But also, what are the practical applications of this? You know, we had coaches coming in and out of the lab all the time interested in the findings. And so being able to clearly communicate, you know, what we were learning and then how that was going to um, uh, translate and, and impact the way that people should could and should train differently, that was always impressed upon me as well. So, you know, I think those are the two major, I guess, just 10,000 foot view philosophical things that I really learned there. We can, of course, get into the specifics of sprint mechanics in a minute here. But, but that's really the best thing that I picked up, you know, macro level from, from my time in the SMU lab. And, you know, as I've moved back to Westchester and, you know, really uh, continued upon that similar line of research at Westchester, I've, I've tried to uphold that, that standard as best I can. So. Yeah. I think a lot of people, if, if you've had a chance to read, uh, you know, Peter studies, and even obviously a lot of the uh, publications you put out, uh, you know, it all speaks to that. And obviously, you know, talking about rate of force development, uh, ground contact times, I think it's a lot of stuff that people kind of knew and we did it maybe by accident. 
You know, I think now the fact that we have some scientific research to support why we're doing things like bounding movements or, you know, why getting stronger is important, real basic stuff that maybe we didn't fully understand. Uh, but I thought it was very interesting when I when I read through some of your stuff and, and Peter's and then really talking about how you guys uh, measured uh, the force output with that treadmill, right? That, which is amazing. That's, that's probably the yeah, greatest toy ever, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. That, that's a nice toy. A lot of people. Think, think hey, just, like just round up $250,000 and you too <laughs> can have yourself a, a custom built, uh, you know, world's fastest treadmill. <laughs> yeah. So, so that thing, you know, obviously it's amazing. Um, and one of the things I thought was very interesting, and I can't remember what study it was in or what publication, but talking about the limb speed, right? So obviously we need to apply force into the ground. We know vertical forces are very important, but one of the things I think that I think it was Peter that wrote it, that the swing time on the front side is almost uh, trying to think of the right word. It's almost negligible compared to the force that goes on the ground, meaning compared to more of a general athlete, you know, like Olympic athlete. Um, can you kind of explain that a little bit more? Because that was something that for me just popped out at me. I was like, wow, I, I always thought when you talk about stride frequency, the front side is so important to get that leg into a ready position. So I don't know what your yeah, thoughts were it's, on that. It's a great question. I'm happy to, to speak on that. And, and yeah, that was one of the big outcomes of the, the 2000 study. And then um, some of our more recent research coming out of Westchester has um, kind of followed up on that a little bit. So, um, you know, in a 2000 study, what they, they found, and this still holds up, is that if you look at basically an Olympic sprinter to a team sport athlete to an average Joe, um, what's referred to as swing time or the, the time to reposition a limb from the, the right foot, you know, towing off behind a runner to the right foot touching down again in front of the runner, that, that limb reposition time. That's going to be basically the same between all runners, fast and slow, uh, within a little bit of bandwidth. And frankly, you could use that term within a little bit of bandwidth to apply to everything, right? Within a little bit of, of variation. But that's going to be roughly a third of a second. Now, um, what's intriguing, and this is kind of where, you know, some of the more recent research has gone, is that um, what's going on during that swing time is is pretty different between faster runners and slower runners. So the, the time from, from toe off to, to touchdown, that swing time is is about a third of a second, exactly like the, the 2000 study, um, you know, demonstrated and, and found. Um, a, a couple of interesting things along the, the research timeline I can point out. So um, the forces, obviously, in faster runners are, are greater, the vertical forces. In, in our 2014 to 2017 studies, while I was down there you know, with SMU, uh, at SMU, we found that the, the forces are greater, in particular, during the, the first half of the ground contact phase. So that um, the second half of ground contact time kind of counterintuitively, the forces are the same. Again, you look at Olympic sprinter, team sport athlete, it's basically going to be no difference between a guy that's running 11 meters a second and a guy that's running nine meters a second. Where all of the differences in the force application is in the first half of ground contact and really like in the first third, within the first like, um, I don't know, uh, 30 milliseconds, 0.03 to 0.04 seconds. That's all the, it's all the difference. It's faster than you can blink the eye. And then kind of where we continued on with that research um, tied the, the force that was being applied to the motion of the limbs. So essentially, although the timing's the same, you know, we all know that, that better sprinters 
are more upright, that they're more front side to use, you know, kind of a Ralph Mann term, that less of the thigh motion is happening behind the body and more is happening in front of the body. So it's putting them in um, what I like to phrase as good position to strike. I mean, basically they're recovering the limb in front of the body and now they're in good position to attack the ground. Then they're really winding up and, and striking the ground with an aggressive ground contact and, and a stiff ground contact upon initial touchdown. And that's resulting in big in big forces. And then um, what our most uh, recent study from Westchester that was just published this, uh, well, really about six months ago at this point, um, showed that um, that those limb rotational velocities are also different between runners of different calibers. So the kind of the, the total time to swing the limbs is the same, but, but where that limb motion is taking place behind or in front of the body is different and, and really how fast they are attacking the ground from that high knee lift position to ground contact is, is faster and faster runners than it is in slower runners. And so that's what's kind of um, setting up for the force application. So it's been, um, you know, in my mind, I just feel lucky to be a part of it, but it's been this really cool kind of progression of research and, and building from, from Peter's study in 2000 and then 2010, and then our research at SMU, and Peter did those studies at Harvard, and then, you know, our studies at SMU, which kind of detailed, well, when is the force happening? So now we're getting into the what and the why of it. And then, you know, um, our, our most recent research, which is really showing, well, hey, from this kind of good front side mechanics, high knee lift position, really got to attack the ground. And, and um, you know, the fancy term would be angular velocities. The, the faster runners have the, the faster angular velocity, which, you know, think of it as Bruce Lee. I mean, all of his force is coming from just like this slow pressing. It's coming from that, that type of action. Um, and that's what's really leading to the the high vertical forces during the first portion of ground contact. So that's a that's a really long winded answer uh, for me. Sorry, I tend to be long winded, but that's that's kind of how well, that, that research all uh, built on each other over over about really two decades at this point. So no, that that helped. I mean, I think you know a lot of times when we hear okay, it's about vertical force, it's about the front side mechanic. Sometimes I think we some people get confused on what that really means and what it looks like, right? Um, you know, when it talks, when you talk about stride frequency, which is more of an older, not an older term, but more the basic term, I think sometimes in my mind, people confuse that with kind of like the roadrunner, I call it the roadrunner, just quick legs or quick feet, like a soccer right. player, yeah. typically. Yeah. But what you're referring to, that leg velocity, that angle velocity coming into the ground, there is a speed involved there. That leg has to move quickly. It's not just about pure raw strength, which some people, you know, you have those strength coaches that think, well, just get really, really strong. You'll have a better vertical force production. Again, not always the case. Not always the case. Yeah, you know, it's it is. I, I hate this because some people view it as a cop out, but it is kind of one of those. It depends things, right? So yeah. I always view strength for speed as like, uh, you know, in a lot of cases necessary. Not always, but in you know, generally speaking, if I'm dealing with a younger athlete, like, and I know we'll get into this, but middle school, high school, is it a good good goal to get that athlete? as strong as possible relative to their body mass? Of course. I mean, to me, I view that as captain obvious, but will that always translate into large vertical forces during top speed running? No, not, not necessarily because you have to have the mechanics that go along with it. And it's a little bit, you know, the mechanics of large vertical forces at top speed are not necessarily the same thing as, you know, a, a deadlift or a squat, but by no means am I saying don't deadlift or squat. I think those are great exercises, but um, anyways, yeah, it's, um, it, it is interesting, you know, just kind of back to the original question you just said about stride frequency, and, and you especially see this acceleration, but the same thing applies at top speed. 
I mean, yeah, in acceleration, a lot of team sport athletes, you know, just spin the wheels, roadrunner style, like you said. What's missing is the, you know, the, the range of motion that their limbs are working through, you know, in coaching terms, big splits, big pushes. Frequency is is good, but it has to go along with, you know, frankly, um, the limbs working through the proper range of motion and, and an acceleration really projecting your center of mass up and out. And it's really no different at top speed. You know, I can have high frequency while I'm going through the quick foot ladder at eight steps per second, but I'm not going to, you know, that doesn't translate into a fast forward speed without the, you know, the range of motion and the, and the force application as well. So I, to my mind, that's the difference between exactly what you just said, which is just stride frequency versus kind of uh, integrating that with some of these other variables as well. So. Yeah. And then obviously then if you go into stride length, which really in, in our minds, it's viewed, we view it a couple different ways. One, you have more of your actual stride length, which is if you just wanted to measure, if you could do like a strider, old school strider, or what's your effective yep. stride length, meaning your projection yep. of your center of mass. And, you know, we try to look at that and, and with kids, it's not as easy, right? It's definitely not as easy right. with like a 13, 14 year old, um, because there's so many mechanical errors that are, that you're trying to work through, you know? Um, but one of the biggest challenges that we've seen, and, and we're trying to attack it a little bit more is we're getting kids stronger. We definitely believe in that. I agree with you. You know, our, yeah. our term is get them strong enough. Like you said, you know, just as strong right. enough, but you know, if I pull 50 more pounds in a deadlift, that may not translate to my sprinting. And it actually could be a detriment. It could, it could, uh, overtrain you, hurt you. I mean, it's definitely, we know things that could happen, but one of the things that we've noticed is a lot of yielding or leaking at the ankle joint when they're striking the ground. Yeah. Now we know they need to have a big punch, right? And I, and I use the same terms you do use. I probably stole them from you is that punch into we all the ground them from somebody, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you got to punch the ground, but it's, it's that fine line of punching the ground. And like you said, hitting the ground with a lot of force, but then you have to be able to get off the ground quickly. And if there's a yielding there, that could be an issue. And then, on the other end of the spectrum, which builds on a lot of research, having that stiffness prior to contact. So there's a lot going on at that ankle joint. So basically, what are your feelings on ankle stiffness versus ankle mobility at ground contact time? Yeah, wow. Awesome line of questions and, and just really cool discussion topic. So um, let's talk about ankle range of motion and I guess proper you know mobility for starters. That's, that might be the easier one to talk about. Clearly, athletes need to have, you know, acceptable levels of ankle mobility, dorsiflexion, you know, whatever the case may be, so that they can execute just the basic movement patterns correctly, right? I mean, if they don't have proper ankle dorsiflexion, it may limit them in a squatting movement or, or something like that, right? So they need to have just, you know, in, in low speed movements, the, the proper range of motion at, at the, you know, uh, at the ankle joint. With that being said, to all of your points about stiffness and optimal levels of stiffness during top speed sprinting, there's got to be a certain amount of pretension that occurs before contact and, and dynamic stability that occurs so that when the ankle or sorry, when the foot contacts the ground and and, you know, you've got four to five times body weight of force, you know, going up through the musculoskeletal system. Um, within the first 25 milliseconds, the, the whole thing doesn't just collapse into the ground with excessive yielding, like you said. So um, I, I've always viewed uh, kind of two basic pathways to try to improve this. Um, and, and, you know, I want to make, I guess, one clarifying point, because this has always been brought to my attention, and it's a good one. There's some optimal level of stiffness. It's not maximal stiffness. I mean, if, if it's maximal system, stiffness, then the system just, you know, 
basically breaks, right? So there's yeah. some optimal level of stiffness. That's hard to define. To your point, you want to see the athlete stiff enough that they can punch the ground and pop off of it without any excessive yielding. From a very qualitative standpoint, that's what I always define as, as optimal stiffness. So how do we get there? So I, I think it, it can be addressed in two ways with like a developmental athlete. Um, for starters, I, I think, you know, there's uh, this is where plyometrics come in really handy and just the basic ones. I mean, this is where your your pogo hops or your, you know, your ankle bounces, whatever you want to call them, your rudiment series. This is where that really helps translate what you're doing in the weight room and with your technique drills and just your overall speed work and, and helps them develop that from a neuromuscular standpoint and just develop the feeling of, hey, the ground's coming up to meet me as I descend downward towards the ground. When do I need to, to turn things on? Because when you're just sprinting at four to five steps per second, that, that's happening too fast. So plyometrics are not only a good way just to literally, um, you know, perhaps build that from a neuromuscular standpoint, but also just to kind of train, okay, hey, I need to turn on now, turn on now, turn on now before you strike the ground. And then I think, um, you know, that that's where technique work comes into play. Uh, and I know there's a little bit of a social media debate out there between, you know, how much good do drills do? And I always view it like this, which is, well, you need to warm up your athletes somehow. You can't just go send them into, you know, full speed 40s or 60s cold. So if you have to do a dynamic warm up, and of course, Parisi Speed School is famous for its dynamic warm up, then your, your warm up drills at some point in your warm up regression should have speed technique drills in them so that your athlete is you know, contact on the ground and you can be cueing them on what that should look like and how it should feel like. And, and so I think that's a great way to develop it from a technique standpoint. So I guess going back to kind of the two pathways to get at it, number one is, is just, you know, developing it, training it. And I really see plyometrics and they don't even have to be the complicated ones, but just basic plyometrics as, as that linkage there. And on the technical side of it, you know, just just drilling it, even in your warm up exercise. And I love the simple, basic ones where you get a lot of bang for your buck. The the A march, A skip, A run. The, you know, the the dribble step overs, the straight leg runs, um, the the bounds, as you were saying. Um, you know, where you're just kind of cueing it and and watching for it, and and giving the athlete a context to feel that out. What should it feel like? when I'm popping a ground on the ball of the foot and, and being reactive. Um, and it, you know, I'll just have, I guess, one other comment, you know, uh, athletes, you can really tell when an athlete is striking the ground. Well, um, not just at sprinting, but I think in, in a lot of those warm up type drills, just they, just because they can do it when they do an A march or a step over doesn't guarantee that they can do it in a sprint, but it really gives you an opportunity to view it as a coach during their warm up and see if they're getting the feel for how to contact the ground. And from there, if they have the feel for how to do it in an A march, in a dribble, in a straight leg run, then it becomes easier to cue and say, okay, you know the way you're contacting the ground? Here in your warm-up, you got to contact the ground like that when you sprint. So that that's kind of how I see, you know, ways to improve that, as you mentioned, absolutely critical component of applying a lot of force and running fast. So. I, I couldn't agree with you any more than everything you said there. I mean, you know, when it comes to our warm-up, as you know, we, we're we're known for having a very long and detailed warm-up, but we're proud of that because one, I think yep. it, it preps people the right way, uh, increases yep. all of the different pathways that we need for them to sprint. And we utilize those drills as movement prep, right? That's probably the strength conditioning term out there sure. as movement prep. But 
The other thing we try to do, it's, we look at the drills as a stimulus as well. We're trying to stimulate them to feel something. Like you said, hit the ground. Cause if you tell a kid to do a skip, they're going to skip like the skipping through the park, right? You go to any track me, I'm a track coach. So you go to any track me, any football field, the kids are just, you know, kind of getting their swag going. And and there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's, that's okay. But but it's not a technique drill, right? No, no. And there's no intent to it sometimes, you know what I mean? Um, and like you said, learning how to attack the ground from above or use, uh, you know, some other famous terms like whip from the hip, things no, like a boss that. Term and I, I think that's a great one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you, the other thing too, is every kid doesn't always, I don't know how you feel about this, but I don't feel every kid always gets every one of those cues or drills. So sometimes you have to switch over and do something else to stimulate them the right way. Yeah. I don't know I, no, I, I 100% that. agree. I mean, yeah, we definitely see things from the, from the same lens. Right. I mean, uh, an athlete may not be able to feel that in, you know, in one drill, as you just said, but it in another one for them. And then that's your, you know, that's your in to say, Hey, you know, if that athlete was able to do it, let's say in a, I don't know, in a step over drill, a dribble, but they couldn't in an A march, whatever. But then you, you reference the step over or the dribble and you say, Hey, the way you were contacting the ground there, that that's the way you need to, to do it. Um, you know, when you sprint, I'll put in a, one other little side note here. Um, cause I get asked this question a lot. You, I, I do this more with my, uh, team sport athletes. I, I train a few just, uh, team sport athletes, and private clients in addition, uh, during the summer, in addition to working with the, the track team at Westchester, but, um, you know, do a lot of what I would term, uh, technical buildups or technical flies with those athletes to finish off the warm up. So maybe they're, you know, they're not a full speed flying sprint, but it's kind of right at the end of the warm up and right before we're truly getting to our, full speed max velocity sprints. We'll do just two or three, you know, at, at 90 or 95%, whatever that means to the athlete. Some athletes can, can gauge what that is. And others are just like, yeah. Hey, just a little less than full speed, but just, <laughs> con- just, just focusing them or contact, uh, uh, sorry, cueing them to focus on that ground contact. Athletes can usually only think about one thing at a time when they're running fast and, and perhaps zero things at a time when it's truly time to go all out. But at a, at like a 90% type of gearing, I find I've had good success with the athletes being able to focus on, on one technical cue and just say, so if it's an athlete that struggles with foot strike, for example, the ground contact say, okay, Hey, you're going to do a technical fly build up zero to 20. You know, I want 90%, 20 to 40. And you're going to take a long decel after that. The only thing you're focusing on is how you're contacting the ground, just, you know, punching the ground on the ball, of the foot, and that's it. And, and, you know, on those reps, they can, kind of dial in a little bit and, and it leads to some good progress over time with doing that sort of thing. So. Yeah, no, I, I think that's great. I've definitely, I've done fly sprints for a long time, but never really worried about what the, not the distances, but what the intent was. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And I've started timing them a little bit more, which is challenging if you don't have a, a system to do that, you know, I'm, I'm doing it with a yeah. stopwatch, but getting them to feel the ability to, whether it be accelerate, at, you know, in the beginning of a sprint or with, with track athletes, they may have to, you know, come out of their flow and accelerate on a, on a, on a turn or something like that. It, I think that feel is the biggest thing that you said. And when you're working with kids feeling, they can feel things, right. You can let them know, Hey, how did that feel? Oh, I felt slow on that right. one. Or I, I felt like my arms weren't moving because I think as coaches, or this is my opinion, I've talked way too much as a coach. I've told them too I many things. I always do that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, well, your arms, your head, I'm like, sometimes it's just, it's gotta be a feel thing. And you know, any other thing that we've been trying to use more is, you know, use the stopwatch as, as your friend, you know, to get them to understand. things. Like you said before, 
you tell a kid to do a 95% uh, sprint. They don't really know. Sometimes. Yeah, I don't know what that is a lot of times. Yeah. <laughs> Especially know. now with younger athletes. Yeah, no. no so I, when I do like with team sport athletes and, and use like a, you know, just a Brower timing system or something yep. like that. I mean, I, I may give a, you know, like a 90% cue, but more often than not, I'll actually say, Hey, full time on this is X. So if an athlete is, yeah. you know, runs a one flat flying 10, I'll just say, Hey, goal time is a one, one, this isn't full speed. And that typically clicks a little bit better than, yeah, some athletes aren't too good with those percentages, which is understandable. So, And it's funny, you know, cause I work with a lot of high level academic kids at the school I'm at, these kids right. in AP physics, uh, you know, AP uh, calculus, all that stuff. You tell them to do simple math in their head. They can't do it. So yeah, that's know, right. <laughs> it's, it's like, what is that? I'm like, just do this. But anyway, um, but I think we've all dealt with that with kids, but again, I think, that's the human side of coaching that sometimes we, we may forget about, you know, Definitely. I know for myself, I read a ton, I've researched a ton and I get to the, the track and I'm like, okay, these are all the things I want to do. And then I realize I'm going to do like two of those today because they're just yeah. not going to be able to absorb it all. No, I think it's always, you know, you got to come in with a plan and then, you know, got to understand that the athletes are humans and you got to adjust it, you know, as you see fit to get the most buying for the buck, no doubt. So because, you know, it can stress them out at times. I'm, I'm sure you've dealt with that where you're trying to uh, make an adjustment or change something. And it, sometimes it goes the other way. I don't know if you've ever had that happen, but they get worse <laughs> from all your coaching. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, especially if you're trying to change mechanics, which I think is a really important point. I actually talk about this in, in motor learning class with my students, but it's no different, you know, teaching any skill to an athlete. And you know, for developmental athletes, you know, middle school and above, a lot of times it's the first time they've been taught how to run. You know, they, if they're a baseball player, they've been taught how to throw and how to swing a bat, but they've never been taught running mechanics. And so, you know, teaching them that skill for the first time at 12, 14, 16, whatever, it, it doesn't always feel good. Um, that also comes up a lot, you know, like with our Westchester sprinters, if we're trying to make a, you know, a, a relatively fine tuned change with one of our athletes, you know, they might do it right and do what we're looking for. And it doesn't always feel good to them. And, and that's okay. We try to be pretty clear with our communication that what feels right to them, you know, we don't try to be jerks. We say this, but what, what feels right isn't always right. So sometimes they have to do, make a change that doesn't feel great at first and, and just kind of trust uh, to use the cliche, trust the process that that will ultimately be, better long-term from a mechanical standpoint, but, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, anytime you're, you're making a change, it's uncomfortable, right? It's just right. uncomfortable. It's for the game. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's different. So. And I'll tell you that it's trust me, kids are very, uh, much more honest than they used to be. <laughs> yeah, they're not going to hold back. Right. <laughs> they don't hold back. I tell you, but I think that's what you have to understand. And, and, and I don't know how you feel, but I tell the kids every day, listen, we're just going to try to work on one thing today. We're not going to try to change everything. We're not going to try to do acceleration, transitional speed, top speed all in one day. It's just a lot for them to handle. Although one of the things I want to ask about that we're making a little bit of a mind shift to, it's something I've always believed in is when you're talking about linear speed, acceleration and top speed, they're not separate countries, so to speak. You know, they, they do relate very well. And you have to understand that you need to learn how to basically stand up with good posture strike the ground and that will transfer over to acceleration. It'll transfer over to multi-directional. So we do a lot of the drills that you were talking about in the beginning, more the mock drills, but different yeah, versions sure. and the sticks yeah, and the aqua bags, but yeah. getting them to understand that first. And a lot of people will say, well, is that top speed acceleration? I'm like, mm, it's just running. I'm teaching them how it's to just, run first. I agree. Yeah. 
No, I, I absolutely uh, see it from the same perspective. I mean, um, yeah, if you ask how like a, a weekly layout plan would look for our, our sprinters, you know, in a fall preparatory period, it would be typically one day a week is Excel and another day is top speed and another day is speed endurance. Or from, you know, working with a team sport athlete over a summer, you know, same sort of thing where one day is Excel, top speed, and another day is change direction agility. But with that being said, to your point, I mean, I, I like whatever analogy you just used there. You know, they, they may be different, uh, what, they, they may be different states, but they're not different countries or whatever the phrase yeah, yeah, you just yeah, used yeah. is, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, they're definitely related. You definitely need to be able to um, just understand good general running mechanics if you hope to execute, uh, you know, a nice gradual transition, you know, throughout acceleration into top speed. And, you know, I, I think one thing that's often overlooked is that although from like a biomechanics standpoint, you know, it's really easy to point out what the differences are, right? Where the force vectors angled from acceleration to top speed, differences in contact and flight times, uh, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, it's easy to, to point out the differences and they exist. So I'm not trying to say they don't. One thing that was eye-opening, I guess, going back to your question from a half hour ago, I was lucky enough at SMU to work with some of the, some really great sprinters, like world-class sprinters on the treadmill. And then subsequent to that, get them out on the track and do some acceleration-based work um, and videotape it. And it just became clear to me that whether they knew it or not, their strategy, I mean, really their motor program was, was just, it was universal. It was, hey, good, you know, good posture, good neutral posture, regardless of what phase of the sprint, attack the ground underneath the hips, you know, strike, strike the ground, uh, you know, with, with the relatively stiff ground contact. Don't let the thigh swing too far behind the body. All of these things, you know, translate literally and figuratively or transfer from Excel to top speed. So, so yeah, I mean, to your point, good, good mechanics are, are good mechanics, you know, in, in any phase of the race. Do we need to practice them separately? I mean, yeah, I, I think to, to really hone in on, on, you know, the specificity of each phase you, you do to make sure the athlete can master it. But in a much more global sense, I mean, you need to, you know, you just need to understand kind of the basic big rocks that underlie all of that. So, so yeah, I couldn't agree yeah. more. Yeah. That's, I mean, probably that's what, what we do. You know, if you look at kids that were trained with us or even if with my track team, I follow basically the same format. One day is an acceleration day. One day, one day is a top speed day. One day might be more that speed endurance or special endurance day. Yeah. But what I think people forget is if you're working on acceleration in my mind, once we've worked on whatever it might be, the mechanics or the transition or the rise phase, whatever we've done that day, we still want to incorporate it with that full sprint. And I think people right. re forget like, Hey, I, I can run past 10 yards. It's okay. You know, you don't have to just run <laughs> 10 or 15 yards for acceleration. Yeah, run yeah. 25, 30 and feel and, that transition. The other thing I would add is, and you know, I'm known from, you know, perhaps my research and I guess more emphasis on maximum velocity, but if you're coaching an athlete doing a max velocity day, if they're doing a, you know, a full speed fly, you can't run a good top speed session, a top speed segment, let's say from 30 to 40 meters, unless you really, you know, have a uh, pedal to the metal during acceleration. I mean, a good acceleration has to precede that, that max velocity segment. So, um, you know, on a true effort, uh, true all effort, uh, max, uh, Max velocity. So, so yeah, I mean, I think there's way more overlap than, than, you know, sometimes is given uh, credit to. So, yeah. Yeah. And another thing too, is to me for a kid, they have to feel what it like, what it's like to put it together. 
because I yeah. think we forget they we we train them in our bubble, but they're going to leave our bubble and go to their sport. And they, right. they I, I want them to feel what it feels like for them to be on a field, a track, a court, whatever it is. So try to put them in a situation where, hey, this is you hitting the hole as a running back, or this is you yep. going down on a kickoff. So I try to put that in their mindset first, and then okay, we'll, we'll, we're going to do with a twenty-yard fly or a thirty-yard fly or whatever we have on on tap for that day. Because if you don't relate it back to their sport, you know, no offense, they don't care how much we know. No, they're you're really not going to get the the <laughs> intrinsic motivation and buy-in from them if they don't say it translating to their sport. You're right; they're not going to care. <laughs> to put it in simpler words, yeah, I, I say it every day. You know, the kid does not care how smart I am; they just care can I get them better. That's all they care That's right. about. Yep. You know, so we, we're trying to, yeah, we're trying to do that as best, best we can. Um, I want to ask you one more question that might be complicated and long, but um, okay. I'm very intrigued. I've read a lot about you two mass model. Um, yeah, I, I, agree. I don't fully get it. I'm going to be honest with you. So maybe <laughs> <That's> uh, okay. <laughs> I want to get it is the problem. I think I understand it, but maybe, maybe you could touch upon it. Cause you've definitely done a lot of uh, presentations uh, in the last couple of years. I know you spoke at Altus about it and, uh, yeah, I think that's where yeah. I, I, I probably first saw it. I, I'm a member, you know, I, I get the subscription on Altus and it yeah, was great. Sure. I've watched it probably five or six times, but um, maybe you could break it down to us. You know, where did that come from? From your mind, it's probably definitely stemmed from your work with, uh, with Peter, right? Yeah. So that, uh, no, I'm happy to talk about it. And, um, you know, I think the, the key thing about that, uh, the two mass model is, not to you know feel the need to like dig into every single one of the equations of the paper and kind of understand a formulation per se unless unless you want but but more so just the big the big picture that comes out of that from a practical application standpoint um, and and yeah uh, happy to talk about that that was part of my um, yeah doctoral dissertation work down there at the, the SMU uh, locomotor lab and um, actually to a large degree that has a primary role in some of the, the factors we already talked about uh, probably 20 minutes ago for, you know, the greater vertical forces and the faster runners and the, and the, you know, why that's happening basically. But, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, definitely take us through it now. So um, the, the science of it is, you know, we noticed that the, that the faster runners have had more force in the first half of, of ground contact. And um we also noticed that the lower limb, and this kind of comes into the you know, the aggressive ground contact. We we were doing a research. We had kinematics, so so motion uh, motion based data on these runners, and, and we we noticed that the faster runners had faster vertical velocities of the lower limb into the ground at ground contact. So, in other words, um, you know, as we discussed previously, even though that the total time to reposition the limb was the same fast and slow, but, but what the runners were doing um, from a, you know, high knee point to when they struck the ground, the faster runners were, were doing that faster. It had a faster touchdown velocity. You could say, we also noticed that they were uh, decelerating the limb um, upon ground contact quicker. It's literally just the, the punch and, and stiffness topics that we've already talked about. So, when you put those two together, a, a fast vertical touchdown velocity and a stiff uh, ground contact, a fast deceleration, what you get just kind of from Newton's laws is a lot of force in the early part of ground contact. So that's how we that's how we first noticed it was just like, well, hey, these these faster runners are getting all of their forces or or more force in the first part of ground contact. 
And if we're playing Sherlock Holmes, their lower limbs going faster at touchdown than the slower guys are. And they're upon contact, they're stopping it. So that's where it all originated from. And then what we noticed, though, was that it wasn't just at top speeds where we could kind of start to pick out these differences. We could also see like when heel strikers, even at like submaximal jogging speeds, you know, they would strike the ground, their force waveform kind of took on this specific, what we term signature. It just looked a certain way. And if somebody ran really high in their tiptoes, like a soccer player at, you know, kind of a jogging speed, it, it had this really smooth kind of the, the inverted sine wave looking type of form an upside down you. So we, um, in, in kind of a qualitative sense, started to be able to, we could just look at the force trace and know how fast somebody was running and how they were striking the ground. It was kind of cool in a very nerdy way. So then, then that really led us to say, okay, well, you know, can we form a model that, that explains this? And so the two mass model was basically um, connecting the dots between the motions of the limb right before ground contact and during the first portion of ground contact and the forces that, that related uh, and the forces that resulted, I should say. Now, there's been a lot of other models that came before this. They're all great. Um, all models build on each other. What was kind of cool about the two mass model in, in my mind was um, we built on a study from 1991 by uh, Bob Burton colleagues, and, and they had like seven masses that modeled the body. And we said, well, this is an incredible study. It used Newton's laws. Can we take those seven and just boil it down to two? The first one is just the lower limb. It's just the foot and the shank. And the, and the second mass is just everything else. We'll just call it everything else. And can we just kind of take some simple uh, parameters, contact time, flight time, the incoming velocity of the limb, and just use those in the runner's body weight and predict the force curves. And, and we could ultimately with a lot of refinement over five years um, from everything from a jogging speed, three meters a second, which is seven miles an hour, all the way up to a top speed sprint of 11 meters a second. Um, you know, some of our Olympians, um, you know, 25 miles an hour. So, and it was, you know, really effective. It was, it was just, uh, it was a joy to be a part of that research. It, you know, it, it was 95% or more effective over all of those traces. And, you know, that, that's kind of the, I guess you could say the, the more in the weed science of it, but the practical applications are this, to get the, the big vertical forces and short ground contact times, which you need for fast sprinting. We come back to just pure coaching application. That comes from fast limb velocities into the ground and a stiff ground contact. Everything that you and I have been talking about for the last half hour. Um, and that's where all the punch the ground and, or pop off the ground. And, you know, how do we address this with plyometrics? That's, 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 that's funnels into all of this. And then even our more recent research that kind of looked at the, the angular velocity of the limb and how that sets it up. So it all kind of plays into this practical application, which is, you know, why are these elite sprinters applying more force? And, and why is it in the first half of ground contact? Well, um, the two mass model helps explain that. So if I, did, if I had to give one takeaway about the two mass model, certainly from a, an applied standpoint or a coaching standpoint, it's much less the in the weeds of, well, how do we, you know, go about formulating it and how did it, you know, perhaps translate it to slower jogging speeds? Cause maybe to a, maybe to a coach or a practitioner, it doesn't even matter. But what does that mean from a coaching standpoint? It's everything we just talked about. What do you need to do to run fast? Good posture, good front side mechanics, attack the ground with a fast angular velocity that leads to a fast touchdown velocity 
punch the ground stiff, and away you go. So to me, that's that's kind of my two mass model from scientific in the weeds to to coaching practical applications of it. So hopefully that helps. Or I don't know, or maybe you just want to pop on the video <laughs> of my presentation. It'll be better. I'm no, not it, sure. did. It, 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 it did. It did crystallize it. You know, it is sometimes when you're when you're trying to get these concepts, you maybe you overthink them. Um, and it, it is everything that we're trying to accomplish. I think the hardest thing for us is when you're dealing with you, younger athletes, there's other factors that that aren't there yet. You know what I mean? They're, they're maybe not strong enough yet. They can't the, hold the position. Absolutely. You know, yeah. so we, you know, we struggle as coaches. And I, I know a lot, I do a lot of education. So we get a lot of these questions, you know, it's a typical, hey, what other drills should I do? And sometimes I just find, you know, they need to just sprint more too. Part of it is I, that I you gotta, need to I run I got to ask this question. No, sorry, I didn't mean to interject. I got to ask this yeah. question on, on social media, actually, by a friend of mine, guy I used to coach with. Um, it was a great question he's a he's a great personal trainer and strength and conditioning coach but he mostly works in swimming he doesn't he doesn't deal with that many athletes who are ground-based trying to get faster but i i guess just due to um, general curiosity or maybe he's working with some some ground-based athlete i don't know he asked me you know just well how do i train to apply more ground force like the most general question <laughs> ever and i just wrote back i was like well that, that probably requires a two-hour phone call but if i had to break it down for like a developmental athlete kind of to your point I would say, well, in the weight room, you know, try to get as strong as you can relative to body mass. That's always the key. Strong as you can relative to body mass and in the major, you know, compound multi-joint lifts, squat, deadlift, you know, some of the Olympic derivations. Uh, do the basic plyometrics really well to help the weight room transfer to the turf. You know, and again, I, I think you can get a ton of benefit of just doing the, the pogo jumps, the rudiment series, mini hurdle hops. I mean, it does not need to be super complicated, but bilateral and unilateral when the athlete's ready for it work on technique and mechanics both in the warm-up drills themselves and then with things like technical build-offs or other technical flies and then as you said you know just just sprint because a lot of athletes just need to run fast to run fast um you know, i think with the caveat that hey we want to make sure our athletes have some degree of technical competency before we just you know set them loose so that they're not you know at a high risk of injury but but yeah, I think, you know, as you said, with developmental athletes, uh, I think a basic approach can be really effective. And that that's not basic in a negative sense at all. It's just, hey, what are the foundational steps we can take? Get them stronger, do the basic plyos well, work on technique with every opportunity you have and and sprint fast. And if you do those those four things, you're, you know, you're probably going to put the athlete on the right path to improve their their speed and overall athleticism. So that's a great way to summarize and real that that's that's really who we are as a company so it's great to hear it from you because it's really everything that we preach is what you said and i know basic unfortunately gets a gets a bad rap as as a word when it comes it to should, training right yeah you know <laughs> uh, you know fundamentals whatever terms you want to use but one of the fundamentals somehow noticed, has a, be a better connotation than, than basic fun. right <laughs> that's right <laughs> but you get kids i think one of the things that i've noticed is kids they just don't run fast any anyway you know if you go to a lot of practices for other sports they may not sprint in practice it's a it's right. doing plays or playing defense which is all important stuff but when they have to really turn it on and sprint sometimes they're actually shocked they do a few of them with us they do a couple 40s and they're done you know 340s in they right. can't even sprint anymore and i'm like well th this should tell you something guys that we need to work on your work capacity and your speed endurance but then you get the other end of the spectrum you know you have a soccer player or someone and they're you know do I call it the death march? They run their guts out. 
three, four, right. five, six miles. So the, it goes back and forth, and it's something that we Happy kind medium. of. Uh, Right. Yeah, it's right. it's not easy, and you know, and, and everyone has just different philosophies. You know, short to long, long to short. You know, you, you get to that when it comes to track and field. But you know, we're trying to mitigate in the middle there and say, listen, we're just trying to prep you and, and give you back to your sport, and hopefully, we made you a better athlete. But I think one of the things that I try to say is I don't think athletes realize that speed takes. It's weird, but speed takes time. It takes no time doubt. for it to happen. It's not like yeah. weights. You can you get strong in a week. You know, you could lift a hundred pounds this week, hundred twenty next week. Wow. But speed could take months, even years. Yeah. To really develop good mechanics if you didn't have them naturally and to really get faster. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's a, it's definitely a long-term, long-term process, no doubt. Yeah. So. Well, hopefully everyone uh, will go back and rewind this and listen to it a few times. I'm definitely going to, this is unbelievable. I'm, I'm very, uh, very honored. Number one, to have you on. I've definitely followed you forever. So this has been great for our network and everyone else out there. You know, I thank you so much for your time. Um, yeah. how can people uh, hit you up? I know you just started your own website and if you want to drop. Yeah. All your that, uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me on. Thanks to Bill. Uh, love the Parisi speed school and happy to be affiliated with it. And, uh, yeah, on social media, uh, at Ken Clark speed, all one word, K E N C L A R K speed. And then, uh, yeah, just, uh, recently, uh, you know, launched a website about six months ago at this point, uh, that's Ken Clark speed.com. And, um, you have everything there from kind of information about, uh, research and uh, podcasts and and other social media things as well as some um, some drill videos and um, you know just link to everything that, that we got going on from a speed standpoint so um, that's uh, that's where to find me and yeah I just wanted to say thanks again and, and thanks to the audience for uh, for listening and uh, you know definitely reach out to me uh, if you're in the audience and you have some some follow-up questions afterwards so yeah, that would be great. I mean, guys, definitely. He's one of the people that you want to follow. And, and one of the compliments I want to give to you as well is I think you put everything in real terms. I know sometimes you, you are a science guy, right? That, that is your background, but I've been able yeah, to Yeah, you got to be able to wear multiple hats. Yeah. So. You know, Thank you. I appreciate stuff. that. Yeah. It's, you know, I love guys like Bosch and stuff, but I get confused. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> sometimes, you know, I'm like, man, it's... I don't know what wavelength I'm on right now, but you know your <laughs> your stuff has definitely been a little bit more uh, digestible. If that makes uh, if that makes no, sense. it does. And, I, I appreciate that for sure. You know, so, but, you know, we, we definitely thank you, and uh, you know, um, hopefully we can do a follow up at some point. And uh, everyone definitely needs to needs to uh, check all your information out and anything you have out there. It's it's great stuff. So we really really appreciate your time. Great. Thanks again, Steve. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you.